So welcome to the podcast on Lesson 5 and Lesson 6 Discussion Board Posts. So let's start with Lesson 5, and um, we'll start with the first question, which was about the article that I had written on banking and ethnic market staffing. And the majority of you actually answered this question on the practice of ethnic market staffing used by banks. Essentially, while this practice is positioned as an inclusive practice, it's actually very exclusionary. And you were asked to explain and also give examples of another industry which uses similar practices. So many of you pointed out that this practice positions racialized minorities as props and props that are used to benefit the institution's bottom line by attracting clientele from similar communities because it these institutions recognize that there is distrust between um, them and racialized communities and that uh, banks do need to cultivate relationships with racialized consumer markets. And the best way to do this is actually by positioning people that look like them on the front lines. Uh, many of you pointed to examples like healthcare and airports, um, but you did need to elaborate more fully on these institutions. Yes, they often staff these institutions to look like the people they serve, but you needed to explain how the institutions actually benefit from this and how racialized and ethnicized minorities don't. So someone gave an example, actually a really good example of policing, where they elaborated um, on this uh, on this institution. Um, they talked about the fact that frontline uh, officers were actually more diverse. Um, but when you look uh, higher up in the police force, uh, you don't see that diversity. It's largely white. And I think this example was really good. And it could have been extended a little bit further. For example, part of ethnic market staffing is so that when racialized minorities actually engage in racist practices, um, that uh, it becomes harder to see these practices and name them as racist uh, because the bodies that are actually carrying them out look like the bodies that they are carrying them out on. And so this is the same thing when, if we look at policing. When uh, racialized minoritized officers engage in racist institutional practices like racial profiling, it becomes hard to name these practices as racist because the bodies engaging it in it are racialized minorities. Many of you also talked about the way in which discourses like right fit are used to exclude racialized minoritized people from certain spaces in the organization where their presence sort of disrupts the dominant relationships of power. And so where white bodies can move very freely in organizations because their association with things like knowledge and power and authority are never really questioned. This isn't really the case for minoritized bodies, particularly racialized and gendered bodies um, or bodies with disabilities. So, um, you know, there were there was also a, a few posts that point to the recent diversity push by corporations after the death of George Floyd, and corporations have really gotten on the bandwagon and trying to brand themselves as anti-racist and so on. And um, many of you have rightly questioned the the authenticity behind this move, and how um, you know how it's more for the basis of profit. Um, you know, when you look at examples of um, Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee, and that's been going on before the death of of, of George Floyd, and you know. Um, uh, institutions like uh, the uh, NFL um, cutting him loose and all of these things uh, where 
he hasn't really got much support from these institutions. Now with the death of George Floyd, you see this outpouring of um, corporations, you know, getting on the bandwagon and trying to brand themselves as anti-racist. But the question becomes how authentic is it? Um, and is it more about the corporation's bottom line? So it was a really good um, discussion. I think many of the posts illustrated uh, that they that there was a really good grasp of this concept of ethnic market staffing and how it's used by organizations um, to mask, uh, you know, these dominant um, uh, racist practices. The next one was on, next question was about racial nationalism. And this is where you had to choose from one of those three allegorical figures that Park talks about where it comes to citizenship. It was either the fraudulent citizen, the citizen of convenience, and the recalcitrant citizen. And, you know, Park goes into details about what each of these citizens, um, what the archetype for each of these citizens, um, uh, what it means. And so um, you were also expected to give a current example. So bear in mind that these allegorical figures are all subject to expulsion from the nation because they're seen to threaten the dominant identity of what is considered a Canadian citizen, which is not just white, but it's also someone who's middle or upper class, someone who's able-bodied and Christian. And being a citizen comes with protections and rights that are granted to you by the nation state. And it also comes with responsibilities to uphold certain values and ideals of the state. And if you don't, then you should be expelled from the nation. Or even if you questioned the contradictions of um, some of these ideals, uh, you're also subject to expulsion as well. So many of you gave some good examples, but um, some of you in your post forgot to give an example, and some of you repeated the actual examples that were in the reading rather than giving a new one. Uh, many of you pointed to Muslim women who wear the veil or the niqab or who, who, don't, the, who don't the hijab, and you point out the ways in which they've been treated, um, particularly in provinces like Quebec, where they've been denied um, access to public sector jobs and services. And um, you obviously related this to the idea of the recalcitrant citizen. Some of you gave some really good examples of the Syrian refugees and associated them with allegorical figures of the fraudulent citizen and the citizen of convenience. Um, you pointed out that at the time of them coming to Canada, the dominant narrative in Canada was that we are supporting uh, Syrian refugees, but we're not doing enough to support poor, can, quote, Canadians. And I think there needed to be more elaboration on the relationship between Syrian refugees and these allegorical figures. For example, how are they citizens of convenience when they are political refugees? That needed to be explained. Um, there are other ways in which people can be citizens of convenience, where their ties to their country of origin uh, are, are read as being disloyal and seen their relationship to Canada is only seen as one of convenience and only when it benefits them. But these need to be teased out with these examples. And so you needed, uh, the post needed to really give examples that would illustrate this. Same for the fraudulent citizen. Uh, someone used the example of Trump and, and Mexican migrants as an example of the fraudulent citizen, which was a good example since Trump's discourse reflects this allegory. Uh, remember, these allegorical figures share the common fate of expulsion from the nation because their identities are at odds with the dominant hegemonic notions of citizenship.
So overall, really interesting discussion um, on lesson, sorry, on question two. Uh, the third question, um, not too many people did it, a few of you did it. And the question was about the sit-in at the Pride Parade by Black Lives Matter Toronto and how the dominant media and uh, dominant queer media portrayed this event and, and specifically how it portrayed racialized people from the LGBTQI plus community and what this said about homonationalism. A few of you did the question and you talked about the theme of terrorism and how Black Lives Matter Toronto actions were equated with terrorism or holding um, holding the, the parade hostage. So remember that homonationalism was about people from the LGBTQI plus community um, that they can be accepted as part of the nation and embody Canadian national identity, but only if they conform and uphold and not challenge uh, these liberal democratic values like equality, justice, freedom, and so on. And um, these values are often violated for marginalized communities. Uh, white LGBTQI communities have experienced violence by the police, but often not to the degree that racialized and racialized LGBTQI communities have. And so speaking out against the racist behavior of police um, and their opposition to having them in the parade, this threatens this national identity of Canada as being um, liberal and democratic and fair and, um, you know, uh, and welcoming. Uh, as one person made a really good point in the post, um, that the that those from the LGBTQI community uh, who conform to a sort of heteronormative practice, like, for example, things like marriage, and don't experience racism, are, you know, not seen as a threat to the nation. So, you know, Black Lives Matter Toronto calling out the unequal treatment, racism, and police violence directed toward racialized and racialized LGBTQI plus communities is a sign of disloyalty to the nation. Um, so some of you also noted the role of the honored group, which I won't go into too much here, but just to say that the Black Lives Matter TO position as the honored group at the Pride Parade didn't conform to the dominant narrative of the other, which could only be fully actualized in Canada because of you know, Canada being a progressive liberal democratic value, uh, having these values uh, and, and, and sort of personifying uh, white Canada as um, this open society who somewhat, um, you know, uh, the other can enter into and be their full self, which is not always the case. Um, I'm going to now turn to lesson six and lesson six questions. So some of you did um, question number one, which actually the majority of you did question number one. And this was about the role of the Roman Catholic Church in terms of its need to apologize for its role in the um, Indian residential school, um, uh, you know, the running of it and the atrocities that happened in those institutions. And so the question asked if, you know, uh, the Roman Catholic Church should offer an apology and their stance right now on it is that uh, uh, know that it's, you know, these were individually run churches and, you know, the church really can't um, apologize for the behavior of these locally run individual churches. And so all of you who answered this question disagreed with the position of the Roman Catholic Church and your reasons included things like the high percentage of residential schools run by churches and the degree to which the church invested in evangelizing and assimilationist goals of the colonial project. 
And these were collective goals of the institutions uh, of, of the church and the state, and not solely the goals of individual churches run, you know, running residential schools. Also, someone pointed out that the church from the bottom to the top, they knew what was going on. So there is uh, a responsibility for the church to bear. So someone rightly noted that the church engaged in genocide, referring to the criteria of the United Nations definition of genocide, which was uh, one of the criteria is the removal of children from their communities on the basis, which was the basis for um, residential schools. Uh, some of you also gave a, a good analogy to the institutional racism that is in policing and saying that it's just a few bad apples uh, you know, does nothing to change the culture of policing and uh, also not apologizing sets a bad example. And so drawing that analogy between what's going on in, in the systemically in the police force and to what has happened systemically in the church was a really good analogy. Um, so this was a collective institutional colonial project. And to say that you cannot apology, apologize because all churches were not involved in the running of the mistreatment uh, or mistreatment in residential schools, denies the systemic and institutional nature of colonialism and the role of the church in that. Uh, question number two, uh, just a few of you answered this, and this was on collecting race-based statistics in schools. And um, you know, the few who did answer this gave some really good reasons as to why they should be collected. Um, and at any age, at any grade, uh, rightly noted that these stats will not only help to hold educational institutions accountable, but also with planning of solutions to address disparities and systemic barriers in education. Lastly was um, the uh, question about um, how to, um, you know, balance uh, making sure that you, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're looking at the high numbers of racialized uh, students um, in classes um, for learning disabilities, how do you um, draw attention to that, right? Um, and without um, demonizing or disparaging or devaluing this category of disability. So discrete explores ways in which both race and ability are socially constructed and they're interdependent. And it's, you know, this seeks to examine the processes in which students are simultaneously raced and disabled. And there is a belief that students of color who have been labeled with disabilities live in the same complex world uh, where they don't fit neatly into one category. However, for um, uh, students of color, the label of disability continues to situate them in a unique position where they're considered uh, less than their white peers with or without a disability label, as well as their non-disabled peers of color. So in brief, their embodiment and positioning reveals ways in which racism and ableism inform and rely upon each other in interdependent ways. Um, Tensions between discrete and critical race theory, we see these tensions as productive sites for furthering knowledge. So people of color have been historically positioned as disabled and inferior in order to justify limited rights. And a common response from like uh, communities of uh, black communities or the African-American communities and other people of color was to argue that they were not disabled and therefore they deserved, they were deserving of their rights. Um, but again, this can be problematic in how this statement is positioned uh, because um, 
disability has long been associated with deviance, a lack of intelligence, and this might help explain why people of color would sort of fiercely fight against this labeling of disability. Um, and we also believe that this ideology is grounded in these hegemonic notions of what is considered normal or normalcy. So unfortunately, subscribing to this binary of able, disabled uh, pits marginalized communities against each other, and it ignores the fact that rights should not be taken away from anyone disabled or not. So dis disability and ability um, is primarily understood as a political and social category. And other marginalized groups have to date largely failed to recognize disability as a socially constructed identity. Instead, there's a reliance on hegemonic notions of normalcy and uh, the view that disability is purely biological, uh, that it's apolitical, that it's asocial and ahistorical, which is incorrect. Um, additionally, Discrit actually uh, acknowledges that if we are not careful, disability can be assumed to refer to every type and degree of disability. So we are very wary of any attempt to suggest a universal experience of centralizing one identity marker of a person. Um, Discrit also rejects any attempts to offer an account of life and experience of people with disabilities without their voices. So they have to have agency in defining uh, disability. They should be at the center of that definition or because again, it goes back to the fact that disability is socially constructed. So it encourages an understanding about ways in which society also limits access and in the embodiment of difference. And um, Crip culture sort of reclaims this label of disability and uh, oppressed individuals and groups have the rights to name themselves in contrast to privileged individuals and groups creating those norms and perpetuating privilege and labeling others in contrast to that norm. So that's just a little bit of an elaboration in terms of the posts. Um, again, some really, really good discussions, some really good posts and response posts. And so I really enjoyed reading them and I look forward to lesson seven and eight.